Zugzwang, from the German word meaning compelled to move. A situation in which the obligation to make a move in one's turn is a serious, often decisive, disadvantage. It's historical time. So have you all watched The Queen's Gambit yet? I'm going to go ahead and assume that you have, because it's good. It's really good. If you've not watched it, I recommend you go and do that right now. I mean, this show's going to keep. You can just hit pause. Go and watch The Queen's Gambit. Because I'm going to be giving away some spoilers, and if you're the type who likes to go into a show Tabula Rasa... Well, don't blame me when it's spoiled. And I mean, honestly, it's not like I'm actually going to be spoiling anything. The show is rather formulaic. It's well done, but it's formulaic. Beth is an orphan. She's good at a thing. Then she gets really good at the thing. She loses a big game and learns an important life lesson. And then she comes back and wins at the end. It's the hero's journey. It's a modern chess-based retelling of the Epic of Gilgamesh. We like the story because it's a good story. So here's your chance to hit pause and go and watch it. Like I said, I'm not spoiling it, but maybe that's your jam. You do you, boo. Alright, so you've just finished watching The Queen's Gambit. It's great, right? Has your interest in chess peaked? Yes? Well, great. What a coincidence. This show is about chess. Funny how things work out, isn't it? Alright, so to answer the hottest question on the internet right now, as of recording this show, according to the current metrics, December 2020, was Towns gay? The answer is, no, of course not. All the women loved him. He's a handsome and charming dreamboat. Just like Rock Hudson. Oh, behave. <laughs> yeah. I loved The Queen's Gambit for a lot of reasons. It's a well-written show, which is rare. Just because it used the hero's journey as a template doesn't make it a bad story. As a species, we like familiar stories. When you go messing with the formula, that's when things get a bit rubbish. Just go and ask Cryan Johnson and Jar Jar Abrams what happens when you mess with the formula. I believe he's tooling with you, sir. And as a writer myself, as a writer myself, it's imperative that I tell you that I'm a writer at all times. If you don't tell people that you're a writer, you're not actually a writer. But as a writer myself, it's not often that I enjoy television. So The Queen's Gambit was refreshing. Actually, seeing something good on television was great. And it's a show about chess, which is even more niche and even more up my alley. I have a very narrow alley. Stop sniggering, some of you, alright? It's rare to see a show about chess, let alone a good one, so The Queen's Gambit was great. Chess pops up all the time in movies and television. It's a common movie trope. And it's usually only used when you want to have two characters of conflicting ideologies debating the merits of their various viewpoints. You do that over a chessboard because metaphors. In some cases it's done well, in most cases it's done poorly. My personal favourite is the series of matches between Professor Charles Xavier and Eric Magneto Lenscher 
in the X-Men series. Personally, I could watch an entire X-Men movie that was just those two playing chess, and it would be fantastic. And you'd also have to assume that Professor X's ability to read minds would be something of an advantage in a game of chess. I mean, that's one of the places where his power set would really come into its own, you'd think. And by the way, look a little bit closer at those games in X-Men. Professor X plays white, Magneto plays black. Sure, that's a little bit heavy-handed. Good guy plays white, bad guy plays black. But if you actually look at the setup on the board as they're playing, Professor X tries to protect his pieces, while Magneto has sacrificed most of his pawns to open up files for his rooks to go directly after the king. It's a nice little bit of emergent storytelling there. In chess, the pawns go first. As writers, we often drop little gems like this into stories, and we die a little inside whenever they're not picked up, so be sure to share that around and make some screenwriter's day a little bit brighter. Like I said, chess is everywhere. In the very first episode of The Simpsons, one of the kids at the smart school has a magazine with a picture of the chess great Anatoly Karpov on it, which is a really weird and obscure reference. And this may surprise you, but the writers of The Simpsons are massive nerds. And in that spirit, today's show is all about chess. The Queen's Gambit has been absolutely huge this year, so a lot of people are into it. I personally like chess, so I'm into it. And this topic was requested, and I am, if nothing else, a generous god. It's not the lash they fear, it is my divine power, that I'm a generous god. And if you're starting to get a little bit uncomfortable about the topic, you should have more faith that I know what I'm doing here. I'm not going to put out anything that isn't fun. Come on, guys, you know me by now. You Greeks take pride in your logic. I suggest you imply it. And the history of chess has some absolute bangers in it that you're all going to love, including one tidbit I found in my research that instantly went into my top five historical tidbits of all time. You'll know it when it happens. So, without further ado, take it away, Radovid the Stern. They say it's the game of kings. That chess teaches one to think strategically. What a load of rubbish. Both sides have identical pieces. The rules stay invariably the same. How does this mirror real life? Chess is, as far as these things can be measured objectively, a pretty good game. It's fair, it's balanced, it can be taught easily, but it's very difficult to master. It's exactly what you're looking for in a game. But as an analogy for war and tactical brilliance, in that regard, chess is somewhat overrated for exactly the reasons that Radovid just said. Chess is nothing like actual war. It's fair. The rules don't change. The units don't change. You can see where everything is. You play against one opponent. There's only one front. None of the pieces can be coerced to betray their side. None of the pieces can run away in terror. None of the pieces break ranks in bloodlust and tear off in an orgy of violence and rape and destruction. So, no. It's nothing like real war. 
it's an abstraction of war. It's the kind of game that might be invented by people from a region where you might like to go to war, but it's just too damn hot and humid, and can't we just do all of it sitting down on a couch? So is chess the oldest game in the world? Not at all, not even close. Go has been around a lot longer than chess, but as usual, when we talk about history, we tend to ignore Asia because that makes all of us look bad. Go is about two and a half thousand years old. But even then, Go doesn't take the cake as the grandfather of board games. The oldest board game we know of is called the Royal Game of Ur, and it's from ancient Sumeria. The Assyrians would have considered Ur to be old. The Egyptians considered Ur to be old. It's about 4,600 years old. The Royal Game of Ur is kind of like a, an ancient version of backgammon. You have a board with squares on it, you need to put your tokens on the board and then move them a number of spaces and get them off the other side of the board to score points. And you know what? It actually holds up. It's surprisingly fun. This four and a half thousand year old game is pretty good. We have enough archaeological evidence that we not only know what an Ur board looks like, and what the pieces look like, what the dice look like, oh yeah, it has dice. Uh, cool, four-sided, tetrahedral pyramid dice. But we also know exactly how to play Ur. You can play it now. A game that is the same age as the Pyramid of Giza, you can go and play it. That's incredible. And Ur was popular. It was everywhere back in the day. Everyone had an Ur set. It was like ancient Tamagotchi. <laughs> I'm really showing my age with that one. Tutankhamun's tomb had a few Ur boards in it when it was opened up. There's a cuneiform tablet, which is about 4,000 years old, that has instructions on how to play Ur. It was written up by a Babylonian who wanted a friend that he'd made in Greece to be able to play Ur and take it over to Greece, so he wrote up an instruction manual. And at the time that this manual was made up, Ur was as old to these guys as chess is to us. I'm not going to go into it on a show about chess, and it's really hard to explain a four and a half thousand year old board game using only audio. So if you're interested in the Royal Game of Ur, definitely head over to YouTube, because there's plenty of great YouTube clips about Ur, and it's a great game. It's surprisingly cutthroat and tactical. It's, it's a lot better than Monopoly. It's got bonus squares and double turns and missed turns and there's heaps of funky rules. Like if you land on this square, you can do this. Or if you roll a double, you can do this. If you roll snake eyes, you lose your turn. It is incredibly advanced for a game that is significantly older than the Bible. And the world's leading expert on the Royal Game of Ur is a guy called Professor Irving Finkel, who go on YouTube, look up Irving Finkel, He's a man who looks and acts exactly like a wizard. He looks exactly like Gandalf. My theory is that Irving Finkel is, in fact, an immortal, eternal being who actually invented the game of Ur and has taken different guises throughout history in order to promote it. So it's not like chess was some fantastically complicated game that popped out of the ether and then everyone raved at it like it was 
bequeathed out of a time machine. No, like, like everything else in history, chess only saw so far because it stood on the shoulders of giants. Chess is based off of an Indian board game from circa 600 AD called Chaturanga. I'll address this point here. When I, I usually use the term CE, meaning common era. Uh, CE and AD, Anno Domini, are largely interchangeable terms. Common era is more agnostic, and I tend to disrespect religions whenever I get the chance, but some of you have been confused by this, so I'm going back to AD. So in 600 AD, there was a game called Chaturanga. Chaturanga was played on what we know today as a chessboard, so 64 squares, 8 by 8, but it didn't have black and white squares, and instead of having a player on either side, Chaturanga had four players, one on each corner, and movement was decided by rolling dice. The name Chaturanga means something like four sides or four limbs. Similar to how the yoga pose Chaturanga is when you do a four-limb plank. So Chaturanga the game was based off of the standard Indian army makeup of the time. An Indian army in this period usually had infantry, cavalry, war elephants, and chariots. Cave here! Chariots! Those were the four limbs of the Indian army, as it were, and those were the pieces that you'd use in Chaturanga. We know them today as pawns, knights, bishops, and rooks. We don't really know exactly how the game was played, because that information has been lost to history. Most of the information we have on Chaturanga comes from a book called the Ramayana, which is kind of like the Hindu version of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey put together. So it's not exactly a good source of accurate information, it's a myth. But what we do know is that India was pretty keen on the game of Chaturanga. It's war that you don't actually have to fight, everyone can just sit on a couch out of the heat and not bother with all the sweaty fighty stuff. Eventually, because trade among civilizations is a thing, the game of Chaturanga made it to the Sassanid Persian Empire. These traders said to the Sassanids, Hey, you know war, right? Yeah, yeah, war. You know how it's too hot to actually do war? Well, what about, right? hear me out, what about if you had a war without having a war? If you could do that, would you be keen on it? And the Sassanids said, Stop drilling, you hit oil! And that's how Chaturanga made its way into Persia. Persia took Chaturanga, and they thought that having to rustle up four people to have a game was a bit of a drag, so they made it into a two-player game. Then they made a few more incremental changes over the years, and made it their own sort of Persian thing, and they called this game Shatranj which was basically a corruption of the word Chaturanga, as spoken in a Persian accent, with a couple of hundred years of retelling. If this kind of corruption of words sounds weird to you, I present this. In Australia, we call a portable cooler, which we invented, by the way, a portable cooler is called an esky. Nobody questions this. It's never been questioned. It's just an esky. That's what it is. Esky is a truncation of 
Eskimo, because cooler, cold, you get it? It entered the vernacular and nobody ever looked back. We take a lot of etymology for granted. Chaturanga into Shatranj is not that big a deal. Shatranj is very, very similar to modern chess. And the game really took off. People loved it. You have to remember, this is a few years before Nintendo. This was like the height of entertainment in the year 600. I know, I'm doing a joke here, but believe it or not, Nintendo was actually founded in 1889. Mamma mia! Holy shit! Yeah. And just like Nintendo, Chetrange was portable. All you needed was a board and the pieces. You, you really didn't even need someone else to play against. You could just run puzzles if you wanted, or you could play against yourself. So that made the game very popular with traders. It was something you could take on the road. And Persia was a very popular place to do trading. With the whole exotic spices of the Orient thing. You know the deal. So traders would take the game on the road with them. And they'd stop in an inn or whatever. And they'd bust out a Shatranj board. And people would become curious. Like, hey, what are these guys doing? And then that would get them into Shatranj. And basically the game spread like COVID. And just like a virus, it mutated. The name changed, some of the rules changed, some rules were standardized, some not, but little by little, it became what we know as chess. Uh, chess itself is pretty much the French term for the game, echeca, but everyone has their own way of saying chess. Chess is just the English name for the game. Like, for instance, the Russians call it shakmati, or checkmates. And you could pretty much end the story there. Aside from a few rule changes that were, in the grand scheme of world events, rather inconsequential, I mean, this is the time when new continents were being discovered on the reg, chess was pretty much done. But, of course, I am going to give you more. I'm going to go into that nitty-gritty of detail because there's some fun stuff in there. For one thing, there was no standard set of rules for what we'd call modern chess at this time. Everyone played chess, but there wasn't like this one rule book that everyone could refer to. There were a lot of local variants. You know, like how some households have the free parking rule in Monopoly, which makes the game way more tedious than it needs to be? Things like that. And going slightly off topic here, but it's important coming into the holidays, no game of Monopoly should ever take more than 30 minutes. That's right, you're all playing it wrong. Monopoly was designed intentionally to be a bad game. Monopoly was designed to demonstrate the dangers of unchecked capitalism and the role of luck in a capitalist system. All of the house rules that you put in Monopoly to make it more fair, that's you adding socialist laws to restrain the invisible hand of the market. Yeah. Where's your messiah now, Tories? Anyway, back to chess. It wasn't exactly standardized. It had basic rules... But you could have things like different movements for different pieces, depending on your region. Maybe the bishop could only move two spaces and not the whole board, for instance. Or if you went to Samarkand, modern-day Uzbekistan, 
they had some weird chess shit going on there. It's important to mention the Samarkand version of chess, because it is off the goddamn chain. Samarkand at the time was ruled by a dude named Timur Gurkhani. He was a rather brutal and ruthless warlord who styled himself as the new Genghis Khan. Timur Gurkhani is better known to history as Tamerlane. And Tamerlane, who we've established was a warlord, was particularly fond of chess. He liked a game that allowed him to simulate murdering people in his time off from when he was actually murdering people. Obviously, we have fun here, but Tamerlane is a complex character, and he fancied himself as a warrior poet, but potato, potato. The man's enlarged my mind. Uh, uh, he's a poet, warrior, in the, in the classic sense. Uh. Tamerlane was so keen on chess that he invented his own version of the game. I'm a little man, I'm a little man, he's, he's a great man. It's called, and this is going to surprise you, Tamerlane Chess. It's also known as Big Chess. And Tamerlane Chess is exactly the kind of chess that you would expect to get if you were playing a game with an amoral and brutal dictator whose rule was unchallenged. Tamerlane Chess feels like Tamerlane was just making it up on the fly and nobody dared contradict him. For one thing, the board is huge. Instead of 8x8, it is 10x11. Not 10 by 10, 10 by 11. This is dialectics. It's very simple dialectics. 1 through 9, no maybes, no supposes, no fractions. Why do you need a board that big? To fit all the crazy pieces that Tamerlane invented. So he had his usual pieces like the pawn, the rook, the bishop, the knight, the king, the queen. And then there's the camel, and the elephant, and the war machine, the giraffe. The Amazon, the princess, the griffin! You know that he was just Kim Jong-uning it up at that point, when he came up with the griffin. Uh, Tamerlane, you can't move a knight that way. Oh no, 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 that's not a knight, it's a, um, it's a griffin, yeah. And my griffin captures your submarine, which means that the Wizard of Lament is now on the board, and he casts Elegy for the Drowned on your king, and I win, and if you disagree, I'm going to have you horribly murdered. And you'd agree to all of this because you didn't want to be tortured to death. Basically, Tamerlane chess is exactly the same kind of chess that you get when you play against a five-year-old. They make up their own pieces, and the rules don't matter. But the development of actual chess wasn't all about warlords who would torture you to death over rule disputes. There were monarchies and religions who were willing to do that too. In the 15th century, chess became popular with two influential groups, the nobility and the clergy. There are reasons for this. You might be tempted to say that it's because chess is a cerebral game of intelligence and tactical wit, and if you did say that, you would be correct, to an extent, a very small extent. Chess was a big deal for the monarchy and the clergy because chess takes a long time to play. It isn't a coincidence that the game took off with the groups that had the outrageous amounts of free time necessary to both play the game and, more importantly, to learn the game. 
because it's fucking complicated. Go look at some chess opening theory. That'll do your head in. And if you're toiling in a field from sunup to sundown trying to produce enough turnips so that some chess-playing pomp in a wig doesn't cut your head off before you die of the rickets, then you're not exactly going to have the time or the mental energy necessary to devote to learning when to transpose into the dragon Sicilian defense. And this is a dynamic that would not change significantly until about the 19th century. It's not like I try to turn everything into a metaphor for the oppression of the proletariat, but all the ingredients are there. If you asked those same nobles and clergy why chess was so popular, they would say that it's a game of tactics and intelligence and it requires a certain amount of refinement that peasants lack. And chess could be played and played and played. It didn't get old. It didn't get used. And of course, chess has so many potential permutations that it is infinitely replayable. It's astonishing that even today there are so many positions that have never been reached, or where they were reached once and never reached again. You never play the same game twice in chess. The number of potential moves in chess is known as Shannon's number, after the mathematician Claude Shannon who determined the game tree complexity of chess to be 10 to the power of 120. So that's 10 with 120 zeros after it, or a novem trigentillion. I know that sounds made up, but it's a real word. I looked it up. In fact, as of recording this show, there was, just yesterday, a tournament where Hikaru Nakamura reached the exact same position in a game that he had earlier played in the same tournament, a game that he'd lost, and he played a different move in that position and won that next game. Instead of moving a bishop, he moved a queen, and he went from lost to win. That kind of replayability made the game of chess interesting to people in the Middle Ages. Chess never got old, essentially. There was always something to try, always something to do. And like I said earlier, there wasn't a lot else to do back then. And these were all important points in the burst of popularity in chess. However, in the time period that I'm talking about, the 1400s or so, there was one thing about chess that was absolutely crucial to its development as the game of choice for anyone who knew what was up. Chess has perfect information. In no way is chess a game of luck. It's pure skill or lack thereof. The board is the same, the pieces are the same, the moves are always the same. So you're always going to have the same board set up. There is always going to be the same pieces on it. Those pieces will never move in a different way. There is no random element to chess, which made it particularly popular with the Catholic Church. Because anything involved with randomness was essentially gambling, and therefore a sin. And in this time period... Sinning wasn't something that you took a selfie of and then posted to Instagram for the likes. If you sinned, you had to get that sin burned out of you with fire, because Jesus is infinite in his love. So because there wasn't a random element, chess obviously wasn't gambling. And it had another thing going for it. From the outside, if you're an observer looking at the game, chess doesn't look very fun. 
Nobody hoots and hollers at a chessboard, and since signs of mirth are quite obviously the influence of the devil, those things are bad to the church, and since chess lacked that, the church was forced to give chess a pass. They didn't trust it, but they really couldn't justify banning it. They tried to ban it, but it didn't stick. Uh, in a few hundred years before this time, in about the, I think it was the 1100s offhand, there's some absolutely insane correspondence between the super ultra mega saint Peter Damien, who spells his name correctly, and the Archbishop of Florence, and they're back and forthing and debating about whether chess was fun enough to be denounced as a sin and an anathema. So you've got Peter Damien saying it's a sin, and the Archbishop of Florence, who was keen on the chess, saying, no, it can't be a sin because it's not fun enough. That's just what you want in a game, isn't it? Again, if this sounds weird to you, you've got to remember that quite a lot of our modern culture has been driven by whatever crazy bullshit a particular pope might come up with at any given time. In a hint at a future show that I might do, if you asked me, uh, which one was that pope again, the one who set up a casino in the Vatican and went to all the orgies and then murdered a bunch of people? I'd reply... I need you to narrow that down a bit more, because that describes a lot of popes. Now, as you can imagine, the history of chess is a very nebulous topic. It's all over the shop. And I've given some thought about how to approach this show, because it's not exactly easy to tackle. The best way to give an insight into the history of chess is to go through it piece by piece, as it were. Individual chess piece by individual chess piece. And the number one question I was asked about chess, what my listeners asked, and it's a good question, is why do the pieces look and act like they do? And great question. Let's go. So there was an Indian game called Chaturanga. It was exported to Sassanid Persia, where it became Shatranj. Persia was later conquered by the Muslims, and that is a lot of cultural influence that's about to come raining down on your whole civilization. When a new religion sweeps in, it tends to change things. And coincidentally, the game of chess is pretty much the same age as Islam. Chess came about in about the 600s AD, and Muhammad was born in 570. The religion of Islam has a rather unique aspect to it that heavily influenced the look and feel of chess as we know it today. Whenever some ignorant racist starts up with, you know, the rant about, oh, how about we tear down the statues of Muhammad and see how they like it, huh? You'll generally see people of the Muslim faith laugh and tell these racists to go for it. Tear down all the statues of Muhammad. Because there are no statues of Muhammad. There are no statues of anything, for that matter. There are no pictures, no paintings, no frescoes. There's a lot of spectacular architecture, but not a lot of what we in the West would chauvinistically call art, inverted commas. And that's because Islam forbids recreations and depictions of living things. In Islam, the act of creation is solely the domain of Allah, and it is considered blasphemous to try and recreate that which Allah has already created. They have a thing about double handling. So, no depictions of living things. 
Which means that when you make a chess set, which is essentially depictions of living things, you've got to get creative if you don't want to incur the wrath of that particular flavor of God. And if you think this is a crazy thing that the Muslims do, then you're right, but then let's be equally dismissive of all invisible guilt wizards all over the world. No religion is above mockery. For instance, Christians over the years have designated a surprising number of animals to be seafood so that they can get around their self-imposed prohibition against eating meat on a Friday. The capybara, for instance, was considered seafood so that they could eat meat on a Friday. Does anyone appreciate how, if you look at that from the outside, tabula rasa as it were, how absolutely insane that sounds? The world's largest rodent is a fish because your invisible sky man said that you can't eat meat on a Friday. It's like if Hawaiian Friday were one of the core concepts of your religion and anyone who wasn't wearing a silly shirt was put to death. But let's not stop there. Even more hilariously, the Buddhists, right, and people don't usually mock the Buddhists, but here we go. The Buddhists believe in this crazy thing called, hang on, let me check. All right, they believe in this thing called karma. Am I saying there's, am I saying, yeah, karma in which good deeds are rewarded and evil deeds are punished. <laughs> I mean, how crazy is that idea, right? It's refuted by a concept known to philosophy as everything that has ever happened, ever. Rupert Murdoch is 400 years old. Karma does not exist. All right, back to chess. So the original Chaturanga was a war game. And chess is a war game. Actually, there's a bit of debate as to whether chess represents war or statecraft, but... That's kind of like arguing over whether someone was hanged or hung. The person on the rope doesn't really care about the semantics. So if we look at the setup of a chessboard in the context as an analogue for war, that is, ancient war, then it begins to make sense. Because war... War. War never changes. At least until very recently, on a historical scale. Wars have been fought, by and large, in the same style for thousands and thousands of years. If you took Ramesses the Great and put him in charge of the Normans at the Battle of Hastings, he'd be able to do it. There'd be a language barrier, but other than that, he'd be able to do it. He'd understand what was going on. If you took Klauschwitz and put him in charge of the Assyrian army, he'd have a ball. Weapons change. Tactics change. But war... War never changes. Painting in really broad strokes here, but a template for your average ancient army was you had a bunch of massed, irregular infantry armed with pointy sticks. That was the bulk of your army. And these were peasants and farmers and whoever just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when some bigwig had the idea to call a war. Hey you, farm boy, here's your spear. Try and stay alive for a while. Then you had missile troops, your archers and your slingers. Uh, these guys are handy because you generally want to be able to inflict casualties on the enemy without them being able to stab you with their pointy sticks. But if your archers got into pointy stick range, then they're usually going to have a bad day. Then you've got cavalry. 
And by cavalry, what I'm talking about here is light cavalry or skirmish cavalry. Heavy cavalry, like shock cavalry. You know, armored French knights with armored horses, and they've got lances, and they charge into infantry and break up these massed formations. That's actually kind of rare in a historical sense. Cavalry, throughout most of history, is a bunch of dudes on horseback who are really, really mobile and fast. That's the advantage of cavalry. You use them to outflank the enemy, to hit him in the sides, or hit him in the back, or chase them down when they run away. Essentially anything except straight-up fight. Caesar was good with cavalry. Hannibal made it an art form. The Mongols made it a way of life. And in the times that we're talking about here, the ancient world, you also had chariots. Whoa! Chariots! Chariots! It's hard for us in modern times to grasp what a chariot was on the battlefield. They look kind of awkward and clumsy and weird to us, but to an army 3,000 years ago in the Levant, a chariot was a horrible death wagon that made you want to void your bowels. I promise you we will don our bondage gear, fuel our death cars, and drive around in circles whooping it up and shooting arrows at people. You did not want to go up against a chariot. Chariots do have their drawbacks, though. They're expensive, they take time and craft to build, they can't drive on any sort of rough terrain or anything resembling a pothole, and they're not terribly agile. But when you can use them, they are essentially a giant lawnmower that just mows over enemy troops. Who is ready to rule the wasteland? So that's your army. You got your massed infantry, your missile troops, your skirmish cavalry, and your chariots. And then, of course, there's the commander, the king, and his retinue of generals and advisors and whatnot. That's your typical battlefield setup for pretty much any army from the Bronze Age right up until Napoleon started having some ideas about guns. Does that look like a chess setup at all to you? A line of massed infantry backed up by missile troops, skirmish cavalry, and maybe some chariots on the flanks with your commander in the center? Hmm? Do we begin to see? Of course we do. So let's break it down piece by piece. The pawn. So pawns represent massed infantry. Very few armies in history had what are known as regular troops. People who were soldiers by trade. That scene in the movie 300 where Leonidas responds to the rest of the Greeks that he's actually brought more soldiers than anyone else by asking what the other people do for a living. Like, what do you do? Oh, I'm a baker, I'm a potter, or I'm a stonemason. And then he asks how many of his Spartans are soldiers, and they all shout, yes? That scene is a great summation of history. Because for the most part, the bulk of your forces would have been irregulars. Just randos. Guys. Whether they volunteered or if they were conscripted, the result was the same. It's someone for whom most of their life, they were not a soldier. And then one day, the army shows up, they hand him a spear, and they say, Alright, pointy end goes in the bad guy, training over, now go fight some people you've never heard of. They're not brilliant fighters, they don't have great morale, they don't have much training. They're basically just meat shields. On an individual level, some of them might be great. They might be awesome fighters or commanders or whatever. They might be really inspirational, and they might not. But on the whole, they're just what's known as PFIs. Poor fucking infantry. 
And these are your pawns. Pawns act exactly like you'd expect an abstract version of infantry to act. They move slowly because large groups of people tend to move slowly. So one square at a time. And nobody wants to run out ahead and be the tall poppy, do they? Because the tall poppy gets cut down. And they don't really fight. They're mostly there to block. One of the weirdest things in history is that nobody really knows how an ancient battle was actually fought. We don't really know how ancient infantry fought other ancient infantry. These massed formations of guys with spears and shields, how did they actually engage with each other? We don't even know if they did engage with each other or if they just sort of pushed like a rugby scrum, or if they charged in and backed off, we don't have the faintest idea how any of this actually worked. Even when we get historical accounts, like when Herodotus talks to people who fought at the Battle of Marathon, he uses expressions like, the troops fought in the usual way. Well, what the fuck was the usual way? We don't know. But what we do know is that the majority of casualties in ancient war didn't come from the actual fighting, barring prominent exceptions like the Battle of Cannae. Only about 10% of the casualties in an ancient battle came from the actual battle. Only about 1 in 10 people would die in the actual battle. What would generally happen is that troops would fight in the usual way until one side broke. That is, they shat themselves and ran away. And then the other side would chase, and they'd send in cavalry and stab everyone in the back. And that's where the casualties came in. So that's why pawns move like they do. They move slowly, one square at a time. They mostly block, engage, other units of pawns. They defend positions. But if an opportunity presents itself, they might see a chance to hit the enemy in the side. If they can hit a flank or a defilade, then they can exploit that opportunity. And that's why pawns can only take diagonally. The word pawn comes from the old French word paon, meaning foot soldier, which is cognate with the word peon, meaning peasant or laborer. This reflects that these guys aren't soldiers, they're just the unfortunate currency that one uses to pay the butcher's bill. And I think it's quite telling that the French used the same word for both. And because the bulk of your forces were usually foot soldiers, you get eight pawns, unlike the other pieces which only have two. Pawns are, by their very nature, crucial to the game of chess, but they're also incredibly boring. You can't win without them. As the chess great Philidor said, pawns are the soul of chess. But they're not exactly fun to play with. One square at a time. Yawn. Throughout history, there have been attempts to spice up the humble pawn, make it a bit more fun. Medieval chess actually named each of the eight pawns. From left to right on the board, they were the gambler, the watchman, the innkeeper, the doctor, the merchant, the tailor, the blacksmith, and the farmer. However, ain't nobody got time for that and it never caught on. And you'll note that none of those guys were the soldier or Mr. Stabby. They're just regular guys doing regular jobs. And if you're playing, say, the Queen's Gambit, for instance, 
You're sacrificing a pawn. You're telling the innkeeper to go and immediately die so that you can have a more active position on the board. And nobody wants that on their conscience. So we stopped naming the pawns. It's easier that way. Got me a future, partner. I'm two days away from retirement. My daughter's graduating from college. Little Susie's growing up. And as soon as we nail Mendoza, my old lady and I are going to sail around the world like we always wanted. You don't want to know that your pawn's got a family? Mendoza! Now, for anyone unfamiliar with chess, there are a couple of funky rules regarding pawns in that attempt to spice them up and make them more interesting. First off, any pawn that manages to make it to the 8th rank, the last rank on the board, gets what's called a promotion. You can turn that pawn into any piece you like. This is a concept that features in the original Chaturanga. So if your lowly infantryman manages to make it through an entire campaign, he's probably going to be quite experienced. He's seen some shit in his career. He cowers when the New Year's Eve fireworks give him flashbacks to Da Nang. Saigon. Shit. So this guy who started out as a rank and file, and chess is where we get the term rank and file, by the way. Ranks are the horizontals and files are the verticals. This rank-and-file soldier, if he makes it all the way to the back, he's probably a commander or a general by now, so that's reflected in being promoted. This is actually sometimes called queening. No, not that kind of queening, it's not as fun as that. Because the queen is the most powerful piece in chess, and you're naturally going to want to go with that. You want to turn your pawn into a queen, but not always. Queens account for 98% of all documented promotions, but sometimes you want to do what's called under-promoting a piece. That's where you go with something other than a queen. The second most common is a knight at about 1%, because sometimes the enemy king is hiding in behind some pieces and a knight can jump over them, so you'll find a position where you can promote a pawn into a knight and get a checkmate. Very rarely you'll under-promote to a bishop, and that's usually to prevent a backrank stalemate. I'll get into that more later. And very, very occasionally, you'll underpromote to a rook in the very specific circumstance that you really want to be a dick and rub your opponent's face in it. The second funky rule with pawns is that on their first movement, they can move two spaces instead of one. I've seen a couple of chess books describe this as an analogy of how untrained infantry have a tendency to not pace themselves properly and then they charge out of the line in a battle rage. But historically, there's nothing to back this up. It was just a rule that was invented in the Middle Ages to speed the game up. Kind of like how Rugby League is slowly getting rid of scrums. Union, pay attention. Finally, pawns can do something called en passant. En passant is French for in passing. Pawns are great at blocking other pawns. Because they can't attack anything directly in front of them, pawns are easily countered. So if you get a pawn without an opponent's pawn in front of it, that's great news for you because you can hopefully march that pawn up the field and give him a new pronoun. This is what's called a passed pawn. 
Conversely, you don't want this happening to you. So let's say that you get your pawns down the board and they're on the fifth rank. If your opponent moves his pawn forward, you'll be able to snap it up with your pawn and you get a passed pawn just two squares away from Queentown. Happy days! But no, plot twist! He uses his special double pawn move to skip the square where you'd be able to capture that pawn. What devilry is this? Which is why the en passant rule came in at the same time as the double move rule. If your opponent double moves in such a way that his pawn goes past where your pawn would have captured it, if it were moving regularly, then on your next move, and only on your next move, you can pretend that you actually captured that pawn. So your pawn captures his pawn and then slots in behind it, like that first original pawn had only taken one move instead of two. I know it's kind of hard to describe this position without visuals, look it up if you're having trouble, but it's like the double move actually took two moves to do. That's an en passant. It's basically a move that was invented to prevent bullshit from occurring. And as I was going through the chess.com archives in research for this show, the amount of people screaming because they'd never heard of the en passant rule is truly hilarious. Some people call it a bug, some people say they were hacked, but the majority of them are absolutely outraged because they're convinced that their opponent had cheated. It all boils down to, hey, they're not allowed to do that because it disadvantages me. I don't know the rules of the game, I didn't bother to learn the rules of the game, therefore anyone who uses those rules against me is cheating. In essence, en passant is the chess world's version of Donald Trump post-2020 election. The Knight. So the Knight isn't actually a knight. That name is a bit of a misnomer. It actually represents skirmish cavalry. A knight is generally heavy cavalry or shock cavalry. Some big armored dude on a big armored horse who gets in a line with other big armored dudes and they crash into the enemy like 10 pins. That's not how it always went down. Usually your cavalry was just a regular guy, but he's on a horse. So they weren't really used to bust open enemy positions, but more to outflank the enemy. At the Battle of Elysia, Caesar famously sent his cavalry out on a huge outflanking maneuver that went for miles and took most of the day. And eventually, Caesar's writing the history here, so of course it's dramatic, at the very last moment, they came riding in, they hit the Celts from behind, and they broke their army. And that's the idea with cavalry. You spot somewhere that the enemy doesn't want you to hit, and then you send in some quick guys on horses to go in and hit it, and then to run away before anyone can respond. So that's why knights in chess move the way they do. That L-shaped movement and the ability to jump over pieces... That's the mobility of mounted forces when everyone else is on foot. They can get around, they can run away, they can hit and fade, they get in strike and run away again, come in from the sides, come in from behind, that kind of deal. But what cavalry can't do is take out a mass of pikemen. Armies learned pretty early on that horses aren't stupid, even if the guys riding them are. 
So if you get a bunch of your guys and make them all stand in really close together and then have each of those guys hold a spear out so it looks like a big echidna, horses aren't going to want to run into that death wall. So a knight on a chessboard can never directly threaten a pawn. If a pawn and a knight are standing next to each other, then they both have to figure out ways to outflank each other to capture. They can never directly engage. It's one of those chess-imitating-life moves that I think is wonderful. I, I, I absolutely love that little facet of chess. So that's why knights move like they do. The Bishop! A holy man on the field of battle? What? Religion in a war game? Outrageous, I say! But seriously, the bishop is perhaps the most controversial piece in chess. Coming back to Chaturanga again, what we call a bishop was originally a war elephant. It didn't quite operate the same as a bishop, but it'll do for our purposes. In India, where Chaturanga comes from, elephants were always part of the army. They've got elephants for days over there. They're not some novelty that only pops up whenever Hannibal comes to visit. Europe, though, not so big on elephants. Except when Hannibal comes to visit, which wasn't something they were too happy about anyway. So if you're trying to introduce chess to a Middle Ages European audience, and you say, this piece is called the elephant, most people are going to say, what the hell is an elephant? So you have to roll with the punches. The elephant piece was known as the alfil. When chess was ported to Europe, the Spanish kept it as alfil, while the Italians Italianized it to alfieri. In French, this sounds similar to enfant, which is similar to the Middle English word alfin. Both of these words mean archer, a guy with a bow and arrow shooting things from a distance. And archer is as fitting an analogy as any for how a bishop operates on a chessboard. Being able to move as many spaces as it likes, but only on a diagonal, is a representation of raining arrows down on your enemy. But, to continue the analogy, this is shooting the arrow and then painting the bullseye around it. See, the bishop isn't an archer, and the bishop isn't a bishop. The bishop on a chessboard is its a representation of officers and bringing orders to the troops. Uh, it's messengers bringing messages, I guess. Or it's diplomats operating behind the scenes between the fronts. That's what the bishop represents. In fact, the only two languages in which the bishop has a particularly ecclesiastic flavor are English and Icelandic, which is biscop, by the way. In Afrikaans, it's a runner. In Albanian and Bulgarian, it's an officer. Slavic languages like Czech and Croatian call it something like an archer, shooter, or a hunter. That It's a weird word that means all three of those things. In French and Latin, it's a jester. In Esperanto, it's the courier. In Estonian, it's the javelin. And in Russian where chess was the state sport of the highly atheistic communist bloc, the piece is known as the slong, or elephant. Time is a flat circle. 
As for the bishop being a bishop and moving like it does, diagonally, it's a representation of the diplomatic back-channels of the church. In the Middle Ages in Europe, if you were at war, and unless the Pope had called a crusade, then generally you were a Christian who was at war with other Christians. We all remember that part in the Bible where Jesus outlines the rules of Fight Club. No! Don't deal with it the way those dead people do! Come on! I get the point, okay, no, but your feeling is premature and light. So if you were the, I don't know, Belgians, and you were at war with the Burgundians, you were all part of the same church. And if you wanted to talk to people you were fighting with, if you wanted to sort of have a truce or something, what you would do is you would send one of your men with a silly hat over to meet one of their men with a silly hat, and then they'd have a chat about how we all worship the same god of peace and silly hats, and then maybe everyone would stop murdering each other for a while, but probably not. So that's a bishop. They don't confront directly, they come in at an angle. No, I'm not making any sex jokes here, you can do that on your own time. The Rook. How can a castle zip around the board in a line, huh? Tell me that! And why is it called a Rook, when a Rook isn't a castle at all, but a blackbird of the Corvidae family? Incidentally, the collective noun for a flock of Rooks is a parliament. Rook comes from the Persian word Rok, which means chariot. Oh, chariots! They aren't castles at all, they're chariots. And you begin to see how they move like they do. Chariots are fast and powerful, but they're not particularly nimble. So they can move in a straight line, but they can't go turning on a dime. In the original Chaturanga, it was the Ratha, which is also a chariot. Chariots! You have to imagine a Persian war chariot. Like something that Cyrus the Great would have used. This was like a big, fuck-off ancient version of a tank. Chariots were pulled by a team of horses, and they featured a huge armoured cab where there was a driver and at least one other person who was armed with a massive war bow, which was like a sniper rifle. This thing was essentially a tank. Until Alexander the Great came along with his exceptionally well-drilled, exceptionally well-equipped hoplites, there wasn't much in the world that could stand against a chariot. And chariots were built for damage, not speed. They could dish out and they could take punishment. The sides of a chariot were heavily armoured, meaning you could shoot out of them, but nobody could shoot into them. It was essentially like having a little castle on wheels. And because the ancient times were all about symbolism, chariot armour was often designed to look like the stone fortifications of a castle. And after years of copying copies of copies, the modern version of a rook features the castle more than it does the chariot. Unless, of course, you're using a Lewis chess set where everything is unnecessarily terrifying. In the Lewis chess set, the rook is the berserker, and he looks like a knife-wielding, buck-toothed Sam Elliott who is wired on methamphetamine and looking to collect some ears. Everything in a Lewis chess set is terrifying. But there you go, the rook isn't a castle at all, it's a chariot. 
You teach me something new every day. Chariots! The Queen. In the words of the modern Queen, Beyonce, sing it with me. Who runs the world? The patriarchy better take note, the game ends when the king is captured, but the most powerful piece on the board is the queen! Get it, girl! And while that may be the case today, like many symbols of empowerment throughout the years, this one came about by accident rather than design. So the whole thing about the queen being the queen is a western thing, and a relatively recent one at that. There wasn't a queen, per se, in any of the original variants of the game. When the game finally travelled to Europe, some of the concepts for pieces didn't fit accurately into a European framework. Like the elephant, if you'll recall a few minutes ago, was one such example. How do you explain this largely mythical creature? Well, you make it something that these people are familiar with. Islam and Hindu cultures and governments were far too removed from European norms to have a like-for-like transition. And in these versions of the game, there isn't a queen. There's a minister, an advisor, a vizier. And since there wasn't really such a thing in Middle Ages Europe, such an exceptionally powerful, non-monarchic figure, two camps emerged about what to call this piece, and they could be largely split into the Spanish and German variants. The Spanish style went with the more traditional Chaturanga roots that chess is a war game, so they had a vizier and archers instead of the queen and bishops. The German style of the game was viewed that chess was a representation not of war, but of statecraft. So instead of having a general, you had a king. And instead of having a vizier, the king needed a queen. And the church needed to be represented, of course, because they were so powerful in these times. So there were bishops instead of archers. So this whole idea that the queen is a representation of feminism doesn't have any historical accuracy. It was always whoever was the vice-king, as it were. The common belief about how the queen became the queen is that it was renamed in honour of Queen Isabella of Spain. I personally subscribe to this theory because A. Spain was patient zero for chess entering into the quote-unquote Western culture. B. The time frame of Isabella is spot-on with when queening happened. C. This was the high watermark for the code of chivalry, of which being good at chess was part of the core curriculum. And chivalry demanded that you had a maiden fair, a fair lady for the valiant knight to rescue, a point which would, a couple of decades later, be famously satirized by Miguel de Cervantes in Don Quixote. And finally, D. Because Isabella I was an absolutely incredible ruler, and as thoroughly deserving of having the queen named after her as pretty much anyone ever. She was also the one who funded Columbus's suicide venture, and while that didn't exactly pan out the way anyone imagined, you can't really fault her for that. Isabella was also a huge part of the Reconquista, and ordered a couple of holocausts of Muslims and Jews, so there's also that. 
I can't find the exact quote offhand, but I think it was the British Prime Minister William Gladstone who said something to the effect of, a great person is invariably never a good person. And I cannot wait for the responses as Cunningham's Law comes into play here. The best way to get a question answered on the internet is not to ask the question, but to post an incorrect answer and wait for the hate. But the fact remains that the Queen was never originally invented as some potent figure of female empowerment. You've got to remember where chess came from. While the actual terms vary from culture to culture, what we know today as a Queen was always some kind of advisor or minister, a parliamentary figure of some kind, depending on the mores of your region. In the Muslim version of the game, you had your king, and you had what was known as a furzan, or a vizier. When a pawn reached the 8th rank, it got promoted and became a furzan. This was eventually abbreviated to a furz. A furzan is a minister or an advisor to the king, the classic example being someone like Jafar in Aladdin, and here's where things get a little bit funky. Promotion wasn't an issue in the Muslim version of the game. It all worked as an analogue. If a pawn, a regular soldier, made it all the way to the back rank, he's seen some shit. He's been promoted a few times in his career, as it were. He would have gone to lieutenant, then to commander, then to general. And as a general, he's the kind of guy who a king would want to have on his staff as an advisor. That makes sense. You'd make him a furzan. And this never bothered anyone until it got to Europe. When you change it to a queen instead of a furzan, shit gets wiggy. There are a whole lot of moral complications involved now. If a pawn makes it to the back rank and becomes a queen, do we need to respect its new pronoun? Does it have a sex change? I'm not being as flippant as you might think here. These were legitimate questions in a heavily Christian world. Did the pawn go from being a man to a woman? And if he's suddenly a queen, what happens to the old queen? Did the king get a divorce? Does the king have two wives now? Will he have more? And believe it or not, There was a huge amount of debate and study into this and the moral implications of allowing pawns to become queens when they reached the back rank. Some players were quite outraged that when an opponent promoted a pawn, that they might have violated the sanctity of marriage in the eyes of the Lord. H.J.R. Murray, in his humongous tome, A History of Chess, goes into this at length, and it's just so delightfully petty but it was such a huge deal to everyone at the time. What to do with a pawn that wants to become a queen when there's already a queen on the board? There were even attempts to make a rule that blocked the promotion of a pawn to a queen if the original queen was still on the board. You had to kill her off in order to remarry, essentially. And while this didn't become a thing in chess, it would eventually be codified into the Church of England. And the thing is, the Furzan, the Furs, it wasn't always this ultra-powerful piece. The Queen today can move in any direction, any number of squares. It's the most powerful piece on the board. Originally, it couldn't do that. It could only move diagonally, 
and it could only move one space. It was like a king, but worse. But because chess is historically actually pretty good at innovating new rules to keep the pace of the game going, it was eventually decided to introduce a balance patch that buffed the movement of the furs. Now, instead of being a slightly less rubbish pawn, it was the most powerful piece on the board, and it started on a center square. This meant that you could get real threats out very early in the game, and that made the game open right up. It introduced things like the Fool's Mate and the Scholar's Mate, for instance. And this came in right about the same time that they started calling the Furs the Queen. And this was a bit too much for some of the more conservative types to handle, who refused to adopt the new rules, and they started calling this a la Rabiosa, or Mad Woman Chess. So yeah, there's your queen. But only if you're in the Anglosphere. In Spanish and Russian, among others, it's still the Furzan, the Vizier, the Majordomo, the Minister, the whatever else you want to call it that isn't a queen. The King. Hail to the King, baby. So, I mean, how much do I need to go into the king here? We all get it, right? 99% of human history has been some sort of monarchy or another at any given moment. Democracy is a very recent thing. Well, the Greeks experimented with it for a bit, but on the whole, it's a recent thing. The king is the guy in charge. He dies and you lose. That's it. There's no grand history as to what the king represents on a chessboard, it's a king. The only real thing to note is that chess being a Persian adaptation of an Indian game, the king wasn't always called a king. The Persians don't have kings. They call it a royale with cheese. But seriously, they have a shah or a sheik. You've probably come across those words before. For instance, Shane Warne was called the sheik of Tweak. So instead of a king, you've got a sheik. And if your sheik was about to be captured, your opponent might feel compelled to tell you that. So they would simply say, sheik. Meaning that you had to move your sheik, otherwise you'd lose the game. And what would happen if you were to find yourself in a situation from which your sheik had no means of escape? Well, there are a couple of Persian words that apply here. First off, there's mat which means to be astonished or flummoxed or helpless. And then there's mata, which means to die or he is dead. So if you've boxed the king in and he couldn't escape and you were definitely going to capture it, you might say that it was a sheik mat or a sheik mata. And if you shipped that across the Hellespont, get people to repeat it a few times over a few hundred years, a sheik mata might eventually be called a shikmet, or a checkmate. I'll break in here with another aside. In chess tournament play, there is no obligation to say check when attacking the king. In fact, it's actually a very dumb thing to do if you're playing high-level chess. If your opponent can't see that he's in check, you should, by all means, allow him to keep blundering. Because chess at international levels has a rule where if you touch a piece, you have to move it. If you're suddenly in check, and you've already touched a piece, you've got to move that piece to somehow defend your king. So you can force some incredibly bad moves just by keeping your mouth shut. 
This rule applies to everyday life as well, not just chess. But what if you were unable to checkmate for some reason? Say that there weren't enough pieces on the board, or that the king couldn't move without putting himself into check. Then the game would have stalled, right? The game would be at a standstill. And in old Anglo-French, the word for standstill was estale. So if you're flummoxed, or mutt, because the game has reached a standstill, one could say that you were at an estale mutt. A stalemate, if you will. There's an old phrase that goes that at the end of the game, the king and the pawn go back in the same box. Which is supposed to mean that no matter what else happens in your life, you can't take things with you when you die. Which is utter shite. It's one of those bullshit phrases that people use to keep poor people in their place. The king, like the rich, has it way easier. He doesn't have to do much. Everyone's working for him. The king gets more powerful the longer the game goes on, and he's the last one to die. So sure, the king goes back in the same box as the pawn, but the king has way more fun the entire time he's on the board. The ideal game of chess, of course, is where all of the pawns on both sides turn around, capture the pieces behind them, hang their kings, and then everyone lives happily ever after. There I am with the proletariat again. But as it stands, the king is the win condition for chess. If you can capture the king, it's in check, and you're forced to move it out of check. If you can't move it out of check, then that's a checkmate. That's how the game of chess is won. If a player feels like they're going to be checkmated and doesn't want to play out the rest of the game, they can resign, but the only way to win is to checkmate the opposing king. Everything else is a draw. If you repeat the same move three times, that's draw by threefold repetition. 50 moves without capturing a piece, that's a draw. If your king isn't in check, but the only move that you could make would put it into check, that's a stalemate, and guess what? That's a draw. Both players agree to a draw, that's a draw. Looking out the window, that's a paddling. Staring at my sandals, that's a paddling. Paddling the school canoe. Oh, you better believe that's a paddling. Chess has a lot of draws. The only way you can win is to take the king. The king, like the pawn, also has a weird rule that only works under certain circumstances. It's called castling. When the queen and the bishops got their upgrades so that they were able to move as far as they like across the board, this made the game too hard. The king was in the middle of the board and it could be attacked from pretty much anywhere at any time if there wasn't a pawn in the way to defend it. So in the 16th century, a balance patch was introduced to allow the king to be defended more easily, and that's called castling. So for anyone who isn't sure how it works, here's a castle. If there are no other pieces on the back rank between the king and the rook, so you've moved the bishop, the knight, and the queen if you're doing a queenside castle, if all of those are out of the way, you can move the king two spaces towards the rook, and then you put the rook on the other side of the king. So you've centralized both pieces and then swapped them. You can't do it if you've moved either the king or the rook at all at any point in the game. You can't do it if you're in check, and you can't do it if it would move you through a check. But if all of those conditions are met, you can castle. 
if you were trying to figure out chess just by watching the moves, this completely violates everything you've seen up until this point. You would have seen that the king can only move one space at a time, that the knight is the only piece that can move over other pieces, and that you can only move one piece at a time. And then you go and break all of those rules, which only works under one very specific circumstance. But what castling does is it speeds the game up tremendously. Instead of using two moves to get the king to one side, and then at least five moves to get the rook into action, you can do it in one move and save everyone a lot of time and it opens the game right up. It's something that I like about chess, or at least classical chess. It didn't consider itself too sacred to introduce new moves if it improved the quality of the game. And it's something that the International Chess Federation could stand to learn once again. So that's all the pieces, and the rules surrounding them. And these rules became standardized at around about the year 1497 in Spain. A guy by the name of Luis Ramirez de Lucina, who was Spanish, if you can't tell, wrote a book called Repetition of Love and the Art of Playing Chess in 101 Games. Fancy title. I've got the actual Spanish name for it written down, but I'll be damned if I'm going to try and say it because I have no idea how to pronounce that. Spain, that is not how the letter Y is used. Anyway, this book was essentially a breakdown of 101 famous chess games, and it was a mix of the old rules and the new rules, and the book proved to be incredibly popular. This was pre-Harry Potter. And since the new rules made for a much more exciting game, people started adopting the new rules. And that's how we got queens and bishops and whatnot moving like they do instead of the old Chaturanga style. So why do the pieces look like they do? Great question, Damo. Thanks for asking it. The official term for chess pieces is chessmen. Settle down, woke police. I don't make the rules. I just delight in them sometimes. Chessmen is the official term, and not all chessmen are built the same. The chess sets that we commonly recognize now are known as Staunton sets. Apparently designed by Howard Staunton, who was the game's best player in the later 1800s. Actually, it was a guy named Jean-Jacques. Staunton merely approved the design, but as ever with this show, I have to sacrifice accuracy for ease of access. You knew what you were in for when you hit play. As used to be the way up until the October Revolution, Staunton was a man of means. Chess wasn't played by filthy commoners. And Staunton saw that there was a need for a standardized set of pieces, because all sets were different at the time, and playing with your own chess set sometimes had a very distinct advantage. If all of the pieces looked kind of similar, you could go, oh, no, no, that's not a knight at all, that's a bishop, you can't move it that way, or you're in check there, because that's actually, that's actually a queen. Oh, not yet. Just because chess was seen as a gentlemanly pursuit didn't mean that it was played by gentlemen. So Staunton designed a standardized set that had a few advantages. The design was relatively easy to mass-produce. If you look at a Staunton set, every piece except the knight can be made on a lathe. The pieces themselves were bottom-heavy and stable, so they didn't get knocked over easily. It's one of those problems in life that you don't really think about because it's already been solved, but having tall, narrow pieces would have been a nightmare to play with. In fact, chess has a term which means hey, I'm about to touch my pieces, but I don't plan on making a move. I just want to make sure that they're stable. 
So if you want to do that in a game of chess, you say jadoub, which means I'm going to adjust my pieces. But by far the biggest advantage of a Staunton set was that every piece looked distinct. There was no chance of mistaking one piece for another. Rooks were based on the crenellations of a castle turret. Knights were in the style of the Greek horses on Elegans marbles. Bishops had a mitre, which is the silly hat. The queen wears a coronet, and the king wears a crown. So thanks, Howard Staunton, for clearing all that up. Because before this, a chessman could be anything, and some people absolutely abused that privilege. The so-called barleycorn chess set looks like something you'd find in the alternative lifestyle section of an adult toy store. There's also a famous style from the Middle Ages Scotland, known as Lewis Chessmen, and they're... Well, they're fucking terrifying. They're supposed to be in the shape of real people, but they're made out of walrus tusks by Middle Ages scrimshaw merchants working out of a bothy in the middle of some terrifying forest filled with vampires. Lewis Chessman pieces are... They look kind of like those little Buddha statues that you can get. You know, everyone knows those, the little fat Buddhas. But instead, imagine if Buddha was dressed up like a knight or a bishop or a queen or whatever, all fat and cartoonishly out of proportion... And then, for some reason, you give each and every piece a wide-eyed, thousand-yard stare, like they've just caught their parents having sex with the Pope. Imagine playing a game of chess with that, the nightmares that you'd have. They didn't even bother to make pawns. They, those just look like ivory tampons. I have nightmares about all of this right now, and I've never seen an actual Lewis Chessman in real life. I have this recurring dream where I'm playing a game of chess with these things, and I look away, and then I look back, and the pieces have moved on their own, and then they'll say something like, I'm the dark square bishop, and I don't like you. Each and every one of these pieces looks like it comes with a warning not to feed it after midnight. Apparently, Lewis Chessman feature in one of the Harry Potter books slash movies. I don't know, I've never read slash watched them. But apparently, the chess pieces they used in the film version were based on Lewis Chessman. <laughs> now that I say it, Lewis Chessman. It sounds like something that a really bad spy would come up with if he had to quickly invent an identity. Like, my name? Ah, yes, my name is, um, Lewis. Lewis Chess Man. Yes, that's it, Lewis Chessman. In a side note that I find absolutely hilarious... Most of the genuine extant Lewis chessmen reside at the British Museum in London. Some nationalist Scottish politicians have made calls for these chess pieces to be returned to their ancestral home in Scotland. Which is a fair enough point, I guess. But if you're looking to have archaeological treasures repatriated from the British Museum, you're going to have to take a number. And that number is going to have quite a few digits on it. The British Museum has a frankly common San Diego amount of priceless artifacts stolen from other cultures. We're talking the Rosetta Stone, a Moai from Easter Island, the jewelry from Darius the Great, among thousands and thousands of other examples. They have a large amount of the Parthenon. It's honestly the equivalent of having the head of the Statue of Liberty in London. And since they don't look like they're ever going to give Greece back the building that is synonymous with Western civilization, I think it's going to take them a while to get around to Scotland's ivory chess gremlins. So, after all of that, we're almost, but not quite, at the point where the Queen's Gambit takes place. As I've mentioned, 
Chess wasn't a game for commoners and the working class. It was very much restricted to those with the time to lounge about playing chess. It was a game for the aristocracy. It was like that in 600 AD, and it stayed that way until about 1917. While chess, or some local variant of it, is pretty common no matter where in the world you go, there's one country that takes chess super seriously. So much so that it is pretty much the national sport. It's tied to their national cultural identity. Russia. Historically, Russia has had a bit more to do with chess than most places, simply because of where they are. They had the Western chess influence, coming in from Europe, but they also had direct lines to Persia, and they share a border with China, who have their very own version of chess, and they also have to deal with the steppe peoples like the Mongols and the aforementioned Tamerlane, so their exposure to chess was always a bit higher than average. Coming into the 20th century, chess was still the game for the aristocracy, and there was no nation on earth that was more aristocratic than Russia at this point. Other countries around the world had started shifting away from the monarchy, but Russia was still very much firmly leaning into autocracy. The Russian Tsar's official title contained the word autocrat. There's no ambiguity there. The Tsar was an emperor. Tsar, just like the German Kaiser, are just local names for Caesar. Chess really became popular in Russia in 1889, when a Russian champion named Mikhail Chigorin challenged the reigning world champion Wilhelm Steinitz of Austria for the world championship. Steinitz was one of the greatest players of all time, and here was a Russian challenging him for the world title. It was a real David and Goliath story. And in this story, Goliath beat the absolute ever-loving shit out of David. Steinitz beat Chigorin. This was cool runnings, not Mighty Ducks. But just getting a seat at the table against the champ was enough to whet the Russian appetite for chess. Russians are nothing if not competitive. Two people in Russia who got super keen on chess were a guy named Alexander Alakine, who actually did go on to become world champion, and Tsar Nicholas II, who you will note has the word Tsar in his title. Nicky was super keen on chess and actually funded a whole bunch of international chess tournaments out of his own pocket. Well, when I say his own pocket, I mean that his pocket was the entire nation of Russia, but still, it's the thought that counts. Nicholas II was also the person who awarded the first ever titles of Grand Master of Chess at the 1914 St. Petersburg tournament. Nicholas II awarded the title for the first time ever to Emmanuel Lasca, Jose Raul Capablanca, Alexander Alakine, Sigbert Tarash, and Frank Marshall, who are all very, 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 very famous names in chess. Nicholas II himself would later fall to the famous Bolshevik gambit played by German Field Marshal Erich von Ludendorff, and he was checkmated twice in the back of the head in a cabin in Yekaterinburg in 1918. Schachmata. I don't know if I'm being too cute here, but I'm talking about the Russian Revolution. Which, you think, might have been the end of chess in Russia, considering how closely it was tied to the aristocracy? except for one weird quirk of fate. One of the people in Russia who was inspired by Mikhail Chigorin and a very enthusiastic amateur chess player himself 
was Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Dude freaking loved chess. So much so that he started ordering the new Soviet state to start bringing chess to the masses. Tournaments were organized in factories, chess leagues were started in cities, teams were created who went on to compete against teams from other cities, and because anything Lenin said was the goddamn law, the Russians took this way too far, especially after his death, and chess became an integral part of the Soviet lifestyle. Chess was eventually organized by the State Committee for Physical Culture and Sport, which was kind of like the KGB of chess. It decided who played, where they played, and which players would be trained as chess masters, etc. It's worth noting that quite a few of those unstoppable juggernaut Soviet chess players during the Cold War didn't really get a say in whether they became professional chess players or not. And it's all because Lenin fancied the occasional game of chess. And weirdly, none of the monarchic components of chess was ever a problem in the new Soviet state, just by virtue of how the Russians adopted chess to begin with. The Russians never adopted the term queen, it was always the furs in Russian, and since Russian nouns are gendered, furs is male, so that piece has never been a woman. In Russia, you wouldn't watch the Queen's Gambit, you'd watch Mr. Vice President Gambit, and it would be awkward. The bishop wasn't a bishop, it was always the elephant, so the new atheist state didn't have a problem there, and the king, which Russia had just shot their own version of, by the way, the king wasn't a problem either. The Russians never called their king a king in Russian, so the chess piece wasn't the Tsar. The word they used is koral, which means a western king. In English, when we say king, we mean a ruler of a kingdom, and when we say tsar, we mean a Russian king. Well, it was exactly like that in reverse. Tsar meant king, and koral meant like the king of England. So, without any tweaking, chess remained chess in Russia when it became the Soviet Union. They just took it way too far and took it way too seriously, and started pumping out a couple of generations of super chess players to prove the dominance of Soviet communism over the capitalist pig dogs of the West. Which brings us, finally, to The Queen's Gambit, the TV series. The one I told you to watch. And, in an absolute first for this show, that's the end of part one. Yep, I'm doing a cliffhanger. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. He's doing it. Look at him. Look at him doing it. He's cliffhangering it. Yep. I am doing a two-part episode. I know. I'm scared and excited too, but there's no way to cover all of this in one show. It's already been an incredibly long journey. I originally tried. This was actually all one cut, but I'm not going to Snyder cut this. I respect that you all have your lives to live. So I'm cutting it in a half. You're going to have two episodes. Don't worry, the next one's not far away. I actually recorded it all at once. But I respect all of you enough to know when to stop rambling, and that is now. So that's the end of part one. Stay tuned for the next part coming out soon, because it is going to be way, way more awesome than this. I've got so many fun stories to tell. Coming up in the next episode, there is a chess robot that beat Napoleon, uh, Bobby Fish's racist tirade in support of 9-11, and... 
Which famous chess player is assassinated by the KGB with a salami? Find out all of this and more on Zugzwang Part 2. As ever, thank you everyone for listening. Thanks for all your support, all of your messages, all of your ideas and questions. They are fantastic. Please keep them coming. They keep me motivated. And for someone with chronic depression, they keep me from doing some pretty terrible things. So no pressure or anything. You can find out more information at smirkfromhome.com. And if you want to hit me up on any of the socials, Go to whatever social platform of your choice, slash history go time. There is a slim chance that I may even reply to you. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. Vaya con Dios, amigos.